following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's always a, a real privilege to be the preacher at ICC and to um, continue to be a voice uh, on the topic of work and faith as part of the uh, Thrive at Work uh, ministry. Um, you know, in one of the past uh, messages that Pastor Steve gave, uh, he, he mentioned that some people had uh, approached him and, and shared with them that they are absolutely loving this COVID season because uh, as a, perhaps as an introvert, they, they love just being with their family all day, every day and uh, don't really feel the need to go out and see people. They're comfortable and happy and could operate like this for a very long time. And when I heard that, I thought, wow, that's so strange because that has not been my experience. Um, I, I think I'm one of the few extroverts here at ICC, and although I'm not an extreme extrovert, I, I really, 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 really don't like being cooped up at home. I, I grew up as a, as a latchkey kid uh, with my parents at work all the time, and so my basic childhood experience was like COVID. Uh, <laughs> stuck at home, nothing to do, nowhere to go. And, and so this, this COVID period has reminded me a lot of that, that broken childhood experience I've had. Um, where it's taken away a lot of things that I, I love, a lot of things that I, I care for. Uh, it's limited me from um, a lot of things that I, that I actually love doing. You know? I, I love, I love, love, love eating out. Uh, I love vacationing. This summer I planned our first Hawaii vacation and painfully had to cancel it. Uh, I love watching sports. I, I love even more watching my kids play sports. I love playing basketball. I haven't played a basketball game in over six months. And I love seeing friends and family as often as I want. And for me, the list goes on and on. You know, in the area of our work lives, uh, things have really changed, hasn't it? Um, some of us have had the misfortune of, of losing our jobs or some of you who are self-employed or have your own business have had to deal with reduced earnings or perhaps less hours. Some of us are, are having to, to deal with the risk of going out in public and, and doing our jobs and, and the risk of contracting COVID every day as you interact with those that you try to serve. And for those of us that work in, in a corporate job like I do, uh, we've We've had to deal with working from home while uh, juggling all of our home responsibilities. Our family has gone through a, a kitchen remodel this summer that has lasted for weeks on end. And uh, trying to do a conference call while the jackhammer is going up upstairs has been a real challenge for us and for me. And you know, um, I've, I've, I don't know if this has happened to you, but I've, I've lost all sense of the week. You know, uh, there's. A lot of times when I have to actually check my calendar or ask my wife, what day of the week is it again? You know, because I've lost all the usual markers that, 
that I, I usually have to know what day of the week it is. I would know by Friday night when we have small group that it's, it's time for the weekend or even Sunday service uh, to help me mark the week. But all those things are gone now, and every day it feels like the same day over and over again. And I, you know, <laughs> I wake up, I go down to the basement, and I get on my computer, I, and then I get on like six or seven conference calls. And then I go upstairs and hang out with my family, maybe watch some Netflix and go to sleep. It feels like that's my day every day, you know. And, you know, even being here at church on Saturday morning has messed up my whole, like, weekend, you know. Not only can, I, can we actually now have Chick-fil-A after church, but, you know, it, it's just I keep on forgetting on Saturdays that we have one more day left in the weekend. And I'm just... Everything is messed up for me in terms of how I mark my week. You know, and throw on top of that, that for the last couple of months, there's been all these heavy, heavy issues, right? Um, famous celebrities like Kobe Bryant passing away unexpectedly. Uh, political upheaval due to the coming election season. Racial injustice, Black Lives Matter. Um, I've also had to wrestle with thinking about my parents' health and worrying about their health and their life. I've had to think through even my own mortality, of hearing stories of people my, my own age that are struggling with, this, with COVID. And then last Wednesday, you know, there was news that came out that we just eclipsed 150,000 deaths in the United States due to COVID, 150,000. And with all this bad news, the last thing on, my, on our minds may be thinking about how we can apply our faith, how we can integrate our faith in the workplace, or even thinking through the voca- this idea of calling or vocation as a Christian. Uh, you know, if there's one silver lining in COVID, it has been that it has given us, it has forced all of us to slow down and to reflect on our lives. It's given all of us a chance to to take stock and, and to ask ourselves whether or not we're on the right track. And for me recently, you know, I've had a chance to spend some time uh, really being challenged on what the Bible has to say about our calling or our vocation as Christians and what it means to be the image of God, the imago Dei, the image bearer. As, as outlined in the book of Genesis. And what I've learned from my own journey on this topic has been so life-giving for me, so exciting, that my prayer for our time together is that as we explore this topic, that it will do the same for you, that it will give you some energy, it will give you some hope, it will give you some motivation for your work during this season. You know, uh, I, I, the last time I preached was on March 3rd, right before COVID started. And, you know, in that, in that message, we explored God's command uh, to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And just two verses before that, we, we read God speaking within the Trinity on the sixth day as he creates man. And he says, in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and then let them have dominion. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and then let them have dominion. And man was different than the animals because we were created in God's image. We were his image bearers. And it's important to see that the cultural mandate that we see in verse 28 is linked to this verse in verse 26 in that the first part of verse 26 leads to the second part of that sentence. Being made in the image of God is why we are called to have dominion over creation. Being made in the image of God is why we are called to have dominion over creation. So part of being made in his image is that we are called to imitate God's rule and reign over creation. Just as we saw in Genesis 1, God's creativity and his ability to create something out of nothing, just as he was able to create order from chaos, just as he was able to bring beauty onto the earth, in the same way as his image bearers, we were to call to have dominion over the earth, and therefore in our work to bring creativity, to bring value from raw materials, to be able to bring order from chaos, and then to beautify the earth. Or part of being made in his image is that we were to imitate God's rule and reign over the universe. Ian Hart, a Bible commentator, on this verse says this. He says, Exercising royal dominion over the earth as God's representative is the basic purpose for which God created man. Man is appointed king over creation, responsible to God, the ultimate king, and as such expected to manage and develop and care for creation, this task to include actual physical work. You see, this role of dominion over creation doesn't mean what we think of when we think of the word dominion. It means that we, doesn't mean that we have to show force or, or conquest, but for Adam and Eve, what it meant right away was that they were to go and to till the ground and to take care of the garden. Being made in God's image meant that Adam and Eve would act as steward, caretaker over creation, as Jesus himself would, and in so doing, display through their work the goodness, the creativity, the power, the wisdom, the order, the beauty, the justice, the creativity of God. And as they did so, Adam and Eve and their descendants would worship God, as the king of kings, acknowledging that all good gifts, all that they were able to do, the result of their work, that all that is good in life flows from the hand of God. Adam and Eve and all humankind were called to rule over creation as God's image bearers. And it was God's plan that we reign with him. Jesus speaks about this uh, in the Gospels, that one day that Christ would restore this kingdom. And he says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, 
Truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In the parable of the talents and also in the parable of the minas, Jesus teaches that faithful workers are going to be rewarded. They're going to be rewarded not by rest, but they're going to be rewarded with greater responsibility to rule over creation. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 23, from the parable of the talents, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Luke chapter 19, verse 17. This is a parable of the Minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. You see, our, our calling, our vocation in the Bible is clear. We are called to steward over God's creation. As God's representative, we are the king's sons and daughters, and we are to reflect his glory through the work of our hands as his image bearers. That was our calling. That was our vocation. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, God's original plan for all humankind was that Adam and Eve and their descendants were to, were to multiply and expand beyond the garden, and they would have formed advanced cities and civilizations. They would have created new cultures, bringing new technology and innovation where there is abundance and beauty, justice and love set in a beautiful creation under one kingdom, under one king where we worship and pledge our allegiance to the king of kings, King Jesus. That was the vision. That was the original plan. But we all know that this plan was not fulfilled. As we read on to Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of man. Now, if I were to ask you to describe what went wrong or to describe the sin that occurred in Genesis chapter 3, we would probably go to Adam and Eve's failure to obey God's command, to not eat of the tree of good and evil and discuss how they caved into their worldly desires and listened to the lies of the serpent. And we would probably point to the moral failure of Adam and Eve. And from this story, we could conclude that at a, at a very basic level that, that perhaps Adam and Eve had this moral contract with God and they broke it. And that's why they were kicked out of the garden and was forever disconnected to God because of that moral failure. And, and so perhaps our conclusion and application from that could be that it is best for us to try to avoid temptation, that we should try to abide by this moral contract and to be, not be deceived by the lies of the enemy. But, you know, in that, in that paradigm, in that, in that understanding of that story, we actually lose the bigger picture, the bigger loss, the bigger sin 
that we see in Judges chapter 3. The bigger travesty of Adam and Eve's sin that we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that they actually gave up. They abdicated their esteemed and glorious role and calling and vocation to be the image bearer of God. They gave that up. They gave up being the steward of God, sons and daughters of the Most High God, and instead of ruling over creation as God had commanded them, they submitted themselves to creation, choosing to serve the idol of created things rather than the creator. They exchanged the glory of their vocation, their calling to rule and reign with Christ and subjected themselves to the idol. N.T. Wright, of whom I owe a lot of thoughts on this message, he writes, he writes the following. He says, The diagnosis of the human plight is then not simply that humans have broken God's moral law, offending and insulting the Creator whose image they bear, though that is true as well. This law-breaking is a symptom of a much more serious disease. Morality is important, but it isn't the whole story. Call to responsibility and authority within and over the creation, humans have turned their vocation upside down, giving worship and allegiance to forces and powers within creation itself. The name for this is idolatry. The result is slavery and finally call to responsibility and authority within and over creation, humans have turned their vocation upside down. In sin, when we sin, we we abdicate. We have given up the privileged and glorious seat of being God's appointed steward over creation, and we in turn become a slave. When God describes the sin of Israel in the book of Jeremiah, he also paints it in this very picture. He doesn't, he, 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 he brings it in such graphic terms. And so this is what it says in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 11 when he speaks about Israel. And I want you to hear the emotion of God in these verses. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. And then God declares, Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? The story of Genesis chapter 3 is that when Adam and Eve sinned and they broke God's law, that was, the, that was little s sin. 
But the greater sin, capital S sin, is that they exchanged their seat of honor and enslaved themselves under a new idol. Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 23 says the same thing. Paul says that we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. N.T. Wright again writes, he says, sin is a human failure of vocation or calling. With all that this entails, when we sin, we abuse our calling, our privileges, and our possibilities. Sin, sin is a human failure of vocation. You know, I had, I had never heard of, of sin being explained like this before. I, I never thought about sin as that it was tied to calling or vocation. I'd always thought of sin in light of my own personal moral failure. But all sin at its root, all sin at its root, is not simply a choosing of the bad as Christians, but it is an exchange of the good that God has wanted to give us. All sin as Christians is an exchange. knowing that God's original plan for us was to rule and reign with them under the banner of King Jesus. But in my sin, I have chosen to subjugate myself under the power of idols has changed the way that I think of sin. When we read the scriptures in the Old Testament, the story of Israel also illustrates this concept. The people of Israel were called to be the very children of God, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a people beloved by God, the apple of his eye, a covenant people under Abraham where God promised that they would be as numerous as sands and as the sands and and the stars in the sky, that they they would be called, that their vocation would be, that they would be a blessing, that God would bless all nations through them. Under Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and King David, God continues to reaffirm to them, you are my people, you are my chosen people, you are a royal priesthood, You will rule and reign under my protection, and I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey, and you will prosper under my provision and my protection. But despite this privileged status and vocation to be a royal priesthood, representing Yahweh to the nations, we know that the story goes that the nation of Israel continues to follow and serve other gods, other idols, And in so doing, they become enslaved. Not only do they get enslaved, but they are exiled to foreign lands. Their story is our story. In that before we knew Christ, we were enslaved 
to the powers of this world. We were enslaved to the idols of this world. You know, studying and, and thinking through this, this greater narrative in the Bible has been just so paradigm-shifting for me and has been so life-giving and so exciting for me to think through. It's like discovering, you know. It's, it's, it's as if I, like, my mom and dad came over one day and, and they said to me, Haman, we never told you this, but you are actually the eighth generation son of the Cho dynasty of the king, kings of Korea. It, it's, it's as if like that was like suddenly revealed to me and, and I, I realized, my goodness, I have this privileged you know, background. It, that is not true, of course, right? Although I, I like to believe that the, I'm from this royal Cho dynasty in Korea. But that's completely untrue. But understanding this truth in the scriptures is, is kind of like that. It's... it's it's seeing that there was something that God had intended for his people. And this, this plan was truly amazing. It was truly a privilege. Last week, um, Pastor Lester, uh, he brought up the significance of Jesus dying uh, on the Passover. And that how through Christ's death, he initiated a new Passover. That when Christ died on the Passover, that he signaled that there was this new Passover that was happening. And through the blood that was shed on the cross, Christ would not only save us, just like the blood on the doorpost saved the people of Israel. But that Christ would now free us from the powers that held us, held us captive. That this new Passover would initiate a new kingdom a new revolution where we can all return back to the original vocation that God has called us, to be his image bearers to his world. He exhorted us to not just focus. Let's just not focus our Christian lives on our personal salvation, just our own personal interaction with God, but that we are called for something greater, that we are called to scatter, to take hold of our vocation and our calling, and in turn to be light and salt of the earth. It, if we were to disobey God's command to go and be light and salt, it would be like the Israelite who, after experiencing the Passover, decided and experiencing God, the angel of death passing their house and, and, and not touching their firstborn, saying back, saying, hey, I, I'm still going to stay here in Egypt. And I'm, I'm content to continue to just stay here in my little house. No, we were, we were saved to return to our, our original calling to be his image bearers, to be God's workers, to be God's ambassadors, God's representatives to the world. As well, two weeks prior to this week, Pastor Peter, he preached on the topic of grace and truth and that we hold the responsibility to go and represent God as we interact with this world. And the best model for being that image to the world is actually found in Christ himself because he was the living picture of God himself. He shared from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the sun, the sun is a radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
And Pastor Peter, through his message, helped us see that the best way to understand what it means to be an image bearer is actually found in the face of Christ himself. And so the two pastors basically set up this message for me. And so let me bring that together as I start to close this message. What does it look like? What does it look like for each of us to be image bearers? The Imago Dei of God in my daily life now that Christ has freed me from the power of idols through his death? How do I practically take this teaching on vocation and calling and make sense of it when I return to work tomorrow under COVID restrictions? As we learn, the image of God is most clearly seen. It's most clearly seen in the face of Christ. And the scriptures, they give us testimony of the life of Christ. So that we can learn from the example of Christ of what an image bearer looks like in our current age. You know, in particular, um, the Apostle John was noted as one of the closest disciples of Jesus, the beloved disciple. And he, he writes the Gospel of John to try to describe Christ and what he, what, who he was like. And he says something amazing in the last verse of his Gospel. In verse chapter, chapter 25, 21, verse 25, John writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. For Every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. He closes the book of John by saying, guys, I I can't fit in all the amazing stories about Jesus. He He was the most amazing person to ever have lived on this earth. And I can't, I can't contain, I, I tried my best, but there would be so much more that I would write if I had to write every single thing that he did. He was, he was someone that those that were the most sinful, the most broken, felt safe. He was someone that children saw him and just would run up to him. He was the most amazing person to have ever lived. He was a perfect image of God. And John did his best to record in his gospel to document some of what he observed. And compared to the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he, he, he strives to focus on accounts that capture the essence of who Christ was. And he had that luxury because he wrote his gospel last. And so he writes to supplement additional stories and provide additional eyewitness testimony that give us a better picture of who Christ was like. You know, similar to the Last Dance documentary, I don't know if you've watched it on Jordan, where after 20 years, we had a chance to watch, get a little bit more insight, a little bit more stories, a better picture of, of Jordan and, and his teammates. The book of John is the Apostle John's attempt to give us more stories, more pictures of this Christ and how he was a true image bearer. 
In John chapter 1, verse 4, he starts off by saying, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so he accounts stories in the book of John that are not found in other books. Amazing stories like the story of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. The passage that Pastor Peter reviewed in John, John chapter 8 about the woman caught in adultery. In John chapter 11, the picture of Christ weeping together with those who are grieving Lazarus' death. It is John who gives the seven I am statements of Christ. And so in, 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 in encapsulating what, what it was to experience Christ, what it was to experience God, he later writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 8, he exhorts us, Brothers, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He doesn't just say God is loving, but he says God is love. He is the personification of love. God is love itself. And I think that would be how the Apostle John would describe the face of Christ. Christ was love. Christ himself calls out love as a mark of all believers. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Paul, in the great chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, says, love is the greatest and fullest expression of a committed disciple of Christ. So if we're to simplify, what does it mean to be an image bearer? It means that we are to display a self-giving and sacrificial love. The image of God is shown primarily in the expression of a self-giving and sacrificial love. That is what the image of God looks like in our age. In the sin-stained world, in the broken world that we live in, we cannot fully rule and reign yet until the time when Christ returns and will usher in this new heavens and the new earth described in Revelation. That time will come. But when Christ died on the cross, he forever freed us from the bondage of serving our idols. And through his life, he gave us an example of how we must go about living and being the image of God in a broken world. The Imago Dei, the image bearers that are freed the powers through the cross of Christ must now imitate the face of Christ that was demonstrated primarily in his self-giving, sacrificial love to others. This includes the everyday work that you and I do in our various jobs and vocations. In the same way that we need to think about our faith, in a larger context than our own personal salvation, our own personal sin, our adherence to some moral contract, and realize that we were freed from the bondage of idolatry to again to be called to bear his image in a broken world, we must also look at our various vocations, our various jobs, and think of it not just in myopic terms of, of our own personal satisfaction or our per- career progression or earning a paycheck, but now we must see our work as an opportunity to love, to serve our neighbor through our work, demonstrating the power 
of his self-giving love. N.T. Wright writes, a new sort of power will be let loose upon the world, and it will be the power of self-giving love. This is the heart of the revolution that was launched on Good Friday. A new sort of power is let loose, and it will be the power of self-giving love. We, as his image bearers, are called to demonstrate and show that self-giving love through our work. So what does this look like in our work lives? I've had to wrestle with this in my own personal job and what, how I can apply what, what self-giving love looks like in my personal vocation. For me, in my workplace, in health insurance, it means that I daily think about the more than 600,000 Medicare members who hold a policy that I am responsible for and think about the best ways to care and serve for that community through reasonable premiums and benefits. It means that in opportunities and meetings that I advocate for a fair net margin on our revenues, knowing that many seniors struggle to pay for their health insurance. In a recent discovery of some errors that we made in claim payments, it means that I actually advocate that we, we make it right instead of just glossing over it. We actually go back and pay it out. It means that I advocate for improvements in our customer service so that seniors who call in feel like they are served and cared for when they call us with their questions and complaints. It means that I, I care deeply for my coworkers and I care deeply for those that are entrusted to my leadership taking time to mentor and care for those who are on my team. It means that I look for opportunities to display the self-giving love by opening up my life to my coworkers and looking for ways to serve them outside of work. It means that I don't look at my coworkers just as potential converts, but people that I want to build a real relationship with, that I want to learn about their lives because I'm, I'm genuinely interested it means that I offer myself as a listening ear so that they can come and talk to me. You know, many of us right now are having to make some hard decisions on putting ourselves at risk and serving those that we are called to serve in our different jobs. I know being married to a teacher, that teachers right now are struggling with this very dynamic in light of this coming school year. And doctors and nurses and pharmacists and lawyers and realtors and basically any role where you're, you're regularly coming into contact with the public, you're starting to weigh, what does it look like for me to serve others through my, through my job? You know, I can't possibly lay out for you how it looks like in your particular role to be the image bearer of God. What does it look like for you to, to display this self-giving sacrificial love? As that is something that is between you and God and how he's speaking to you, how he is challenging you to love others sacrificially through your chosen vocation. But today I ask you to take this call seriously to be that image bearer, and to take steps of faith wherever that takes you. You know, recently I heard of testimony of some Christian nurses that decided 
that they are not going to let any COVID patient die alone. I was so blessed by their testimony that they would, even at personal risk, stay and work overtime in shifts as they held the hands of those that had COVID. And they would work hard to ensure that family members that wanted to get in contact with them would be facilitated through video conference. And I was so blessed by their display, again, of self-giving love. What an amazing testimony. Sky Jitani, in his book, Future Vote, writes the following, and I'll end with this. He writes, Imagine a Christian community where followers of Christ are not merely focused on church-based programs, but they are taught how to commune with Christ and glorify Him in business, the arts, medicine, education, and every other channel of the culture where he has called them. Such a church would exist not to advance its own agenda, but to advance the common good. Their callings would all be diverse, occurring in different parts of the world and in various channels of culture, but every calling would be held in esteem by the church as coming from Christ and as part of his plan to redeem all things. What a beautiful picture of a church taking seriously the individual calling that we all have to live out our faith through our vocation. And my prayer today is that God would do this very thing here at ICC. And that each of us would take time to pray and ask God, how can I be your image bearer to this world? Let's pray. Father, in your word, uh, you have promised that you have come to give life and give life to the full. And that promise was not for us to receive when we die and, and in heaven, but that promise is now. That right now, you have called each of us to take hold of this freedom that we have, been, we have received through Christ's death on the cross. And that, Lord, you are calling each of us in our own specific ways to now be your image bearer. And Father, as we struggle and as we pray through what this looks like in our own individual callings, our own individual jobs, Father, would you do a greater work in us? Would you allow for us to take steps of faith? Would you allow for us to look for opportunities to display this self-giving, sacrificial love which you demonstrate for us. And in turn, may that give you praise and glory. May you be glorified through the work of our hands. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you once again. We ask that, Lord, you would strengthen us, you would enable us to be faithful in this way. In Christ's name we pray.